Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Back to the Uncomfortable Truth. The subject today is very uncomfortable. It's about microaggressions. Recently, a couple of weeks ago, a man in East Hampton, Massachusetts, uh, was uh, given, was extended an offer to become, I believe, school superintendent. Uh, he was very, um, very much in favor of the job. He had grown up there. He had the credentials. And the school board or whomever offered him the job, and he accepted. And he got back to them uh, because uh, there were a couple of contractual things for future years that he wanted to straighten out. And this was not, this is not unusual with contract negotiations. And the two people who he had a contact, as it turns out, uh, were female. One was, I believe, the president of the board, and I forget who the other was, some kind of director, uh, but two women. And when he got back to them, he addressed them in his salutation as ladies. Uh, they both felt that this was a microaggression. The, the plural noun ladies was a microaggression. They went back to the board and they rescinded the offer. And they said that uh, if he were so insensitive to what microaggressions were about, he could never serve with any kind of effectiveness in a learning capacity, nor manage people who were teachers and so forth. He was stunned. So were a lot of parents who rallied outside the school board or wherever to protest this reversal of the contract. But nonetheless, as far as I know, a couple of weeks later, he's still gone. What I'm shocked at, of course, is that a thousand parents didn't turn up to take their kids out of a school system that's run by people who are that who are that ignorant. Now, micro means very, very small and uh, sometimes infinitesimal. Macro, of course, is the opposite, means very, very large. There was a time when Ritz-Carlton, before Marriott uh, purchased the Ritz-Carlton chain and really undermined the brand, that Ritz-Carlton's pretty good today, but not what they used to be. They used to be the equivalent of Four Seasons, no more. But behind the public areas in Ritz-Carlton's, in their hotels, in the employee areas, was a sign. I've seen the sign because I consulted with Ritz-Carlton at one point. And it said, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. That was the message they gave to their employees. And that was the frame of reference employees took to dealing with people. And the service was exquisite. We are ladies and gentlemen dealing with ladies and gentlemen. Uh, people opening a, a ceremony, a, a master of ceremonies, a host, often says, good evening, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And so I'm not quite sure where ladies suddenly became, in effect, a word of microaggression. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that um, uh, in one of the articles I read, it seems to me that we're going in a strange direction here because the, um, the reporter, who was very good, who covered this, I thought very objective, but the reporter consulted diversity and inclusion experts. Now, I don't know what makes you a a diversity and inclusion expert, and I've been in consulting for over 30 years. But these experts all said the same thing. Ladies, that term, can be dangerous, and so why use it? Uh, And so it probably shouldn't be used. Now, it seems to me that, I don't know, a lot of diversity and inclusion experts are just around using other people as target practice. They're out there looking for people who are inadvertently, inexcusably, 
in the microaggression area, even though they're not really microaggressions at all. But these people have to earn their living, not unlike attorneys who insist on four pages of boilerplate to make a point that one sentence would equally do. Uh, earlier this year, I think it was around January 1st, uh, the Congress uh, passed a, um, uh, a, a protocol, a procedure whereby uh, they would use different and gender-neutral terms for everything. So previously, they talked about a relative as being a father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, first cousin, nephew, niece, husband, wife, father-in-law, mother-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, stepfather, stepmother, stepson, stepdaughter, stepbrother, stepsister, half-brother, half-sister, grandson, or granddaughter. But now... The clause will define relative as the following, parent, child, sibling, parent's sibling, first cousin, sibling's child, spouse, parent-in-law, child-in-law, sibling-in-law, step-parent, step-child, step-sibling, I love that one, half-sibling or grandchild. Uh, and so we have this marvelous gender neutrality, which to me makes things even more difficult because if you violate one of these terms, uh, step-sibling here, and you call somebody a half-sister or, you know, a poor cousin, I guess, you're in trouble with the diversity and inclusion police. Years ago, when my daughter was an undergraduate at Syracuse University, her sorority, Alpha Phi, used to run something uh, annually called Bop With Your Pop. And the fathers would come at a certain time and dance with their daughters. They'd be liquor. I'll tell you, sorority sisters, sorority people, sorority siblings, I don't know, sorority sisters can drink. And we'd come in and we'd dance with our daughters and drink with our daughters and we'd have a great time. And then an hour later, the, the mothers came in. And of course, Bop With Your Pop lasted two years and then it was banned because not everybody has a pop uh, and not everybody felt included, I guess. And so that was gone. And it's a shame because it was a great, great institution. So my experience has been that it's pretty easy to see macro aggressions. Uh, I worked once about uh, 10 or 15 years ago for the largest, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. <clears throat> and for a decade, I did a variety of projects for them and advisory work and coaching. And then one day, the most senior executives came to me and said, we want you to do a study on diversity here in the company. And I said, I am not a diversity expert. It's not what I do. It's one, you know, I don't do finance and I don't do technology. And whoever heard of doing diversity, quote unquote, I was a performance improvement person. And they said, yeah, but that's why we trust you. Uh, because uh, you don't have a corner office here. You're not looking at a retirement plan. People around here know you and they like you. And we think that you're the best alternative and we're gonna pay you this. And I said, okay, I'm hired. And so I conducted focus groups of various kinds of people homogeneous, heterogeneous, all kinds of people, uh, by gender, uh, by ethnicity, by race, and so forth, and mixed. Uh, it was extensive. And I walked around the place observing. This took about a month or so. And then I created a report that was so hot that it nearly burned the building down. And two executives handed it off as fast as they could to the next, who gave it to the president who hit the roof. And he said, this is not my company. And of course, I couldn't be fired. <laughs> so I wasn't really worried. But Credit to them, they made big changes after that. Now, when I say macroaggressions, if you can believe this, in one of the focus groups, for example, a mixed group, various people, one of the women in the group said, well, uh, there are problems, she said. You know, I have a roommate and she applied 
uh, to a company and she didn't even sound black, she said, this white woman said, yet they still rejected her. And three men across the table who were black looked up and suddenly said, what do you mean sound black? And she said, oh, you know what I mean, sound black. And some of these episodes, some of these focus groups were, were that horrible. There was a man from Nigeria who said he was told outright that because of his accent, he would never progress there. There were mid to senior level managers who told me that Asian people would always go into research and never be promoted to senior management because they couldn't confront people. And it went on and on. And then one of the executives was skeptical of some of the things that I had reported. I took him to the cafeteria and I said to him, what do you see? And he said, I see a large group of people having lunch. I said, your problem is you're not looking closely enough because over there are only white people and over there are almost all black people and over there are Latino people and so forth and so on. And I said, this is what you're overlooking. So these are macroaggressions and they're horrible and anybody with sense should be able to see them. But sometimes you do need somebody from the outside to bring in the fresh air so you can see what you're looking at. No question about it. The microaggressions though, I find a lot more difficult. And I find that they're often called microaggressions when that's not what they are. So I looked up what some examples of racial microaggression might be. This is from the internet, from Google, various sources. And it says, serving a white person right away without checking who was there first, okay. Denying that racism exists. Now, if you deny racism exists, that's pretty ignorant, but is it a microaggression or just somebody's opinion? Accusing the other person of being oversensitive when they are harmed by a microaggression. So whatever their opinion of a microaggression is, if you don't believe that they're really harmed by it, then you're committing a microaggression and maybe that's what I'm doing here. The next one, saying, for example, that the best person should get the job regardless of race, this does not take into account, it said here, structural or institutional racism. And so the best person should get the job regardless of race is a microaggression. Using derogatory terms, well, that makes sense. Making assumptions about people's sexual orientation, I can buy that. Moving away from people or excluding them from discussions. All right, so long as that person isn't making an ass of himself or herself, and you're moving away because of that. Uh, accusing people of being oversensitive. So you can't even tell somebody that wasn't a microaggression. I think you're overreacting because that in itself is a microaggression. Uh, saying that I'm not homophobic, I am not homophobic, but a lot of people feel they have to start a sentence that critiques a black person with I'm not a racist, but because they're scared and they want to show it's not about race. You see, this gets very circular. And so I think one of the problems today, among many, is that every grievance becomes a mountain. Every grievance becomes something that needs to be heard and acknowledged and reacted to by everyone. Now, I am not denying, right? I'm not homophobic, but I am not denying that there are aggressive words and actions and phrases and gestures that take place that can be prevented, that should be understood, and that need to be pointed out to some people because they're simply unaware of them. And other people who, aren't, who are aware of them and who are probably not going to be changed because they're being deliberately 
aggressive. But I also think that we're wasting a hell of a lot of time and energy on things that point to people's guilt, that assume they're doing something deliberately, that assume they're trying to hurt others when there's really just innocence involved. And sometimes it's unawareness and sometimes it's just a difference of opinion. And what do I mean by just a difference of opinion? Well, ladies, I don't think that's a microaggression. I hope you don't either. Have a good day, all of you. I think that's safe too. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.